Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. Previously... On Bonaparte. I was calling home every Sunday because, you know, this is pre-cell phones. You know, there was no easy way to stay in touch. One time, my brother answered. He said, your friend Laura is dead. Her body was lying in such a manner as the head was lying east and the feet west, resting on her left side. There's no blood at the scene. There's no skid marks in the gravel. There's nothing indicating that an accident had occurred there. I said, you know, Leanne, I have resources now. I'm a, like, I'm a real lawyer. This needs to be solved. It's solvable and it should have been solved, you know? The vegetation here is so lush. That's something I always notice when I come back. It's just a step. I mean, you lived out in the Northwest, which is probably even more lush. Straight. Yeah, go straight. Yeah, it's definitely greener than I could have had envisioned. During the years when we get a lot of rain, it's like day-glow green here. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of like Ireland. Iowa City, at least when we visit in March, is lovely. It's in the southeast corner of the state, and it sits on the Iowa River, which winds through these low hills and groves of maples and oaks and elms. The city feels immediately familiar, though I've never been here before. It's an archetype, a storybook small city. There's a downtown with lively restaurants and college-friendly bars, shopping, a few office buildings. And then you drive a few blocks, and you're in single-family homes. The variety from house to house is really striking. Yeah. In this, this part of town, anyway. Like, one's, like, overgrown yard, semi-abandoned looking, and then we have this, like... Disney manicured. Yeah. There are two public high schools. Of course, they're rivals. There's a lively local arts and culture scene. And these sort of gentle hills that a kid could just barely pedal up and then go flying down with no hands on the handlebars. That's the Catholic, the Catholic school. Some of, like, uh, the troublemakers would be sent to Regina and my family. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine and Thomas. But we're not in Iowa City just for the nostalgia. This is where Laura Van Wye grew up as well, and where she spent most of her life. I'm here to learn more about her. In part because her life may contain clues about her death, but also because her life was a remarkable one, worth remembering. 
From Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. By the time Annie and I arrive in Iowa City, I've been researching Laura's case for over a year, and Annie has been living with it far longer. I've conducted dozens of interviews, read everything in the media about the case, and researched topics from the history of Iowa City to the methods of modern police investigation. And while all that was helpful, our most important source of information, really our only source of information about what happened in the hours before and after Laura died, was the Missouri law enforcement file. Murder cases generate a lot of paperwork. Interview notes, photographs, lab reports, maps of the scene, phone records, credit card receipts. All that makes up the file. It grows and grows until ideally the weight of that evidence is enough to convict somebody. In this way, criminal investigations are a lot like the civil litigation that Annie practices. Investigative files don't come neatly packaged into narratives. It takes real work to digest the morass of details and uncertainties. As lawyers, we have to tell a consistent story, you know, for many reasons. We have to be able to explain what happened in a way that protects our clients' rights, that does not expose our clients to liability. And the story has to fit the facts. If it doesn't fit the facts, it's not going to be a credible story. The other thing about telling a story is that that's how people remember things. We remember stories. We don't remember disparate facts that are not strung together for us. The Laura Van Wy file is a thick stack of individual reports, numbered and labeled with bureaucratic precision. It's written in this terse, precise language that immediately says cops. Document 30, for example, is titled Neighborhood Canvas, October 27, 1996. The reporting officer is identified as Corporal Platt. Under occurrence type, the report lists one word, homicide. On October 27, 1996, Sergeant Ari e. King and I performed a neighborhood canvas of approximately nine city blocks in Cahoka, Missouri. Then it lists the names, addresses, and phone numbers of the eight people that Platt and King interviewed that afternoon. Like many of the reports in the Van Wy file, this one is not exhaustive. During the interviews of the above-listed people, no one reported hearing or seeing anything of value to the investigation. 25 years later, I want to ask Platt how he could be so sure 
about what was of value to the investigation, then just a few hours old. It's a familiar frustration for any lawyer reviewing documents, one Annie and I have felt many times reviewing this file. Some of the reports are more detailed. Number six is a report from Officer Bruce Clemens, the lead investigator on the scene that night. It's four single-spaced pages with attachments for statements by the truck driver who found Laura and other witnesses at the scene. Like I said before, it's our primary source of information about the scene itself. There were no skid marks of any kind, no vehicle debris, no evidence of the body sliding or scuffing anywhere in the area. And the only blood was located immediately below where the body was found. John Land first appears in the Laura Van Wye police file in a call record, a single-page form filled out by the sheriff's dispatcher. A notation indicates the call came in at 0734 hours on the morning of October 26. And on a section on the form titled Nature of the Call, the dispatcher summarizes what he was told. An emergency room nurse who'd heard about a possible homicide the night before reports that Land has a two-inch cut in his leg but won't say how it happened. Then there's a typewritten narrative section, which reads... Clark County Deputy Barry Wilson contacted Land at the hospital. Land also told Deputy Wilson he had been stabbed at the Buck and Bowl Tavern, but refused to say who stabbed him. Bucking Bowl is a bar located about 20 minutes from where Laura was found. Found with, among other things, an open pocket knife in her jacket. The police ask Land to come to the station for a full interview, which is described by another report in the file. Land is the owner of a local radio station, and on the night Laura dies, he and his station manager go to the Bucking Bull. Officially, they're there to collect $127 in advertising fees. Unofficially, since they're at a tavern on a Friday night, they're there to have a beer or three. When Land eventually confronts the tavern owner about his debt, the tavern owner pleads poverty. He says his wife just left him. That's why he doesn't have the money. Land points out that the tavern owner's wife is in fact working at the tavern as they speak, cleaning tables. Things escalate from there. The tavern owner takes cash from the register, shoves it in Land's shirt pocket. Further words are exchanged, and the police file reports. Land said the owner hit him with an uppercut. Then a second man escorted Land outside. Land told the police that this is around 1 a.m. and that after he's escorted out of the bar, his station manager drives him to the country kitchen for breakfast. At this point, the investigator typing up the notes breaks the fourth wall and points out something that the attentive listener is probably wondering as well. What about the stab wound? Numbered paragraph six of the report reads, When we first started talking to Land, he did not mention being stabbed or having a cut on his leg. When we asked about a stab wound, he said he had not been stabbed and that he had done it himself. The police report pretty much ends on that statement. There's no follow-up. How does the interview end on, oh, that stab wound? I did that myself. Later, at Lance's house, the police examine the pants he'd been wearing that night, and there it is, a cut in the fabric of the left leg. The only problem, Lance's injury was to his right leg. Take a left. The house I was born in is close to here, um, although I don't remember that house because we moved to the big house when I was like two years old or something. One of the places I wanted Annie to show me in Iowa City was her own childhood home. Annie's family is quite prominent in the area, something I didn't know until I started reporting on this story. 
Her father has been a doctor in the main hospital for nearly 50 years. Her mother served on the city council. And Annie and her seven siblings, they grew up in one of the biggest houses in town. The house was a gathering spot, especially for friends with unstable home lives. It was a reliable source of companionship and home-cooked meals on cold Iowa nights. Laura and her sister Sarah were there a lot. You know what? It's just a really warm house. It's got this beautiful woodwork inside. Um, it's just a really comfortable, like, warm house. Let's pop out. So people liked being there, you know? Yeah. Each room in the downstairs is a different kind of wood because mm -hmm. the house was built by someone who owned a lumberyard. Hmm. So, like, one room is walnut, one room is cherry. Oh, wow. And it's got columns like this inside. The house Laura lived in when she and Annie were closest is just down the street from Annie's family home. It's a narrow, simple house with a small porch and a patch of grass in front. This is the house, like, right... This one right here. This is the house that um, Leanne bought. So before this, Laura and Leanne and Sarah were living in, um, in like a, an apartment in Coralville, which is like the next town over. Mm -hmm. And then they, Leanne bought this house. And I think it was like the first house they'd had, at least in a while. They'd been living in apartments. Remember what room Laura's was? I mean, it was upstairs on the right. It was probably the one with that little window. I remember she painted it super, like a bright purpley blue. The inside of the room? Or yes. The, yeah. yeah. I'd never seen anyone paint a room that dark of a color. <laughs> so what happened with John Land after he told the cops he'd stabbed himself in the knee? As I said, the police report pretty much ends there. But here's how I read it. John Land was evasive and vague about how he'd been stabbed. And at that juncture, the police went to the interrogation room next door because that's where they'd put Paul Smith, the station manager who'd been out with Land that night. The police had the two men in a classic prisoner's dilemma situation, separated from one another, not knowing what the other was saying. Having gotten one version of events from Land, the police would see if the two men's stories matched. They did not. One new thing the police learned from Smith was something Land had only hinted at. Land had been very, very drunk. He started drinking around 5 p.m., Smith said, and it wasn't until 11 that the two men head to the Bucking Bull. When Smith stops en route for gas, Land picks up more beer for the road. The confrontation in the tavern happens more or less as Land describes it. But afterwards, Smith told the police, the two men do not go straight to the country kitchen, as Land claimed. Smith drives Land home to Keokuk at around 1 a.m. At this point, I have to imagine the cop's radar is on full alert. Their suspects are in the area where the murder victim was found, driving around after a night's drinking, riled up from a fight. Their stories don't match, and their alibi, being at the Bucking Bull, expires just before the critical time. Laura was found at 1.45 a.m. Smith, however, has more to say. He tells the police that shortly after dropping Land at home, he receives a phone call. It's Land, epically drunk, saying something about having a gun. Smith goes back to Land's house, he tells the police what he finds when he gets there. Land had a rifle with a bayonet attached to it. They were in the house at first and then went outside to the deck. 
Land was throwing the rifle and sticking it in the deck. Smith took the rifle and folded the bayonet. Smith convinces Land to come to the country kitchen for breakfast. It's there that he notices Land is bleeding from a cut on his leg, which both men figure is a result of Land's bayonet tossing. They go to the emergency room. The police followed up on Smith's explanation of the injury. They went to Land's house, where he showed them the bayonet, and they spoke to his wife, Mary. She vouched for his presence at home by 12.30 or 1 a.m. and the subsequent bayonet story. As for the hole in the wrong leg of the pants, they were sweatpants. And Land's wife, with what I presume was a long-suffering sigh, said she thought he was so drunk he'd been wearing them backwards. That's the last we see of John Land in the file, and it appears the police ruled him out as a suspect. But it wasn't the only promising tip that came in soon after Laura's death. On the following Thursday, a mechanic at an auto repair shop in Gorin, Missouri, calls the police. A 1978 Chevy Caprice has come into his shop. Officer Clemens took the call. The vehicle showed up in Gorin with front-end damage shortly after the girl was discovered lying on the road near Cahoka. The rumor was that the vehicle might be involved with her death. Gorin is about half an hour west of Cahoka. The most direct route is to take 136, passing by the location where Laura was found. Also, the mechanic tells Clemens, the car has no license plates. Clemens drives to Gorin and examines the Caprice. On its smashed front end, he finds blood. The owner claims he hit a deer. He gives Clemens the location, someplace called Rainbow Flats. There, Clemens finds bits of the Caprice still scattered on the road. Forensic analysis of the damage to the car identifies short, thick hair in the front grill, consistent with deer fur. Between them, the land lead and the Chevy Caprice take up days of police investigation time. It's frustrating to read through this material years later and think about what these investigators might have been doing instead of chasing red herrings. Only, that's the nature of police work. Most leads go nowhere, but experience teaches us that eventually, one of them takes us to the killer. An experienced investigator I spoke with put it this way. Over the years in all my case, I spent as much time eliminating people as, it, as you do getting your suspect and, and making the case. You keep stirring the pot, the lumps will come out. You know, it's like gravy, you know. You stir till the lumps come out. Following up on leads like this is an essential part of the investigatory process. But I can't say I'm surprised none of them panned out. A random encounter with a stranger, it's hard to square with the unusual circumstances of Laura's death. A hit and run or an attempted rape or robbery gone wrong. None of that would explain why she's wearing someone else's jacket, why she's carrying a plate of rice and a baby blanket, but doesn't have her son with her, or how she ends up in Cahoka, a town 30 minutes south of her last known location. According to the FBI, around half of murder victims are killed by someone they know. Who did Laura know who might have had a reason to commit murder? Annie and I continue our drive around places in Iowa City where Annie and Laura hung out. After seeing the house where Laura grew up, we head to a tiny duplex Laura moved into with her boyfriend Donnie. It's perhaps two minutes away from their childhood home. Not much in Iowa City is more than five minutes from anywhere else. It's this house here, this little brick house. So, Donnie and Laura were living in the left half of it, I think. 
Laura and Donnie lived in this house for about a year until they broke up in August of 96. There's also the lot behind this on the other side of the creek belongs to this house and she had the most amazing vegetable garden back there. There's no sign of Laura's vegetable garden at the duplex anymore, but I'm struck by how unique the little building is. So it's a low it's a, brick duplex. Yeah. With like, it looks completely out of place. Yes. Right? There's not a single house in this neighborhood that we've seen that looks anything like it. It looks like it, uh, it should be in L.A. Laura gave birth to their son, Samson, in this house. I went over there when she was in labor. <laughs> she wasn't talking very much. <laughs> Now that I've had two kids, I totally get it. <laughs> but I just remember she was really, like, not smiling and looking kind of tight-lipped and, you know, not really responding, not being very chatty. Yeah. <laughs> Again. And you're like, hey, I came over to see this cool thing happening. <laughs> yeah, Why are we like, hanging out? She's like, I'm working now, kind of, you know, like, leave me alone. That evening, we meet up with some of Laura's friends. We're in the upstairs room of a small wine and cheese shop. Did you, did you guys know what you want to drink? I have the smoky... Um, smoky drink? Yeah. Okay. Um, I need something with no alcohol. Do you have a tea? We do have a tea. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a weeknight, and we have the room to ourselves, along with a few bottles of cold white wine and some appetizer plates. I have pictures. I can pull yeah, up Yeah, show me. Oh, you brought pictures. That's so awesome. Okay. Talking with Annie is Josie Dunnington, who was inseparable from Laura in middle school. Oh my God, look at this card she made me. Oh. When is that from? Look at the punchline. <laughs> Can you read it for us? <laughs> do I wish you a happy birthday? Does an eggplant do yoga? <laughs> Laura's greetings, a little tiny non-existent division of Hallmark. It's an eggplant in the lotus position. Is it like watercolor or like uh, it's watercolor color pencils or something? Yeah. Josie has brought a stack of memorabilia, old photos, examples of Laura's artwork and her creativity, like the eggplant birthday card. She passes them around, and soon the table is covered in pictures of a young woman I've only gotten to know through police reports. So what I think is hilarious about some of these photos um, especially these like snapshots I took in the halls at school. This is junior high. And every single shot, I don't know if you can see, like Laura is just mugging. Like yeah. just totally like. Can't get a straight picture. No, no way. There she is at my overnight, you know, like she's the one who sprawls on the floor like some sort of model. Yeah, she was. She was extra. Yeah, she was extra. I don't need Laura's friends to tell me which one she is in these photos. She jumps out of every frame. Everyone else had their little uniform of the 80s, I don't know, like that late 80s hair, you know, with the, the bangs that are kind of hairsprayed and the kind of waterfall of hair. And Laura would be like, she'd go to school dressed as a different character every day. That's Laura Barron, who lives in San Francisco now. Like she'd be in the 50s, you know, petticoat. She'd like wear like a 1950s dress with like the crinoline underneath it. 
And then the next day she'd like wear a white t-shirt with no bra, with the sleeves rolled up and a cigarette pack tucked under and like, you know, low men's Levi's and kind of affect like the bull dyke look. And everyone else is in like stonewashed blue jeans and white t-shirts with beer advertisements on them. It wasn't like showing off or like, I think I'm important or, you know, I want, I want everybody to notice or remember me. It was, I want to do this thing. I want to have this experience. And I want to bring the people I, you know, like to hang out with along. A lot of the material Josie has brought are Laura's drawings and little art projects. Her friends remember her as constantly creating, whether as a quick pencil sketch or compiling her daring outfits. Everyone I spoke with also made a point to tell me how smart Laura was. Annie told me Laura was one of the smartest people she'd ever met. The records backed them up. Laura repeatedly scored in the 99th percentile on those national standardized tests, and in an excellent public school system stocked with the children of university professors, Laura skipped sixth grade. Laura's friends describe her as an inspiration, even now. Several of them were reluctant to speak on tape when I first approached them. They wanted to know that I would give Laura's memory due respect, of course. But it was more than that. They weren't sure that they could convey the scope and scale of Laura's personality or her influence on their lives. I don't remember if it was, I don't know how I, we ended up out there, but I think Laura concocted this plan. And it was just her and me, and she said, let's go as 50s movie stars to the beach. You know, and we were, what, 13, maybe 14 by then? All trying to fit in and feel normal and not call attention to ourselves, especially when we're in bathing suits and, you know, She's like, no, let's let's do this up. And she she had this, I remember like an aqua, like a 50s, 60s aqua colored bandeau, one piece swimming suit and wore heels and a scarf to match and then cat eye sunglasses. And I tried my best to, to dress up for the occasion, but I was nowhere near, you know, she just she just went for it. I mean, I think that was probably the first time I, I was like, gosh. This chick is cool. I want to hang out with her more. You know, this is the kind of fun I want to have. Do things for the theatrics of it, for the, the drama, for the experience. Mostly it's just trying to broaden people's sort of sense of possibility and call into question what they take for granted. She was an artist through and through and in the kind of way that like David Bowie is an artist. It's their whole self that's an artist. I talked to Josie before and she told me about another childhood adventure with Laura. We had this idea of like, you know, we want to try this getting drunk thing. And my parents said, well, you know what? All you kids are going to be doing that eventually. Why don't you do it at home where you can be safe and we'll buy you the one bottle of wine. Josie's parents left her and Laura with the bottle and went out for the evening. Laura made a production out of it, preparing a plate of fancy hors d'oeuvres, insisting that they dress up for the occasion. They drank the bottle they'd been given, and then, of course, went straight to the cupboard for a second one. Neither of them touched the food. We were kind of rolling around on the floor by the time my parents got home. 
Josie's father picked up his VHS camcorder to capture the moment. <laughs> Just do whatever you do. Whatever you do, don't let Miraculously, Josie still has the 30-year-old recording. The video, it's poorly lit and low resolution, a 1980s camcorder shooting in low light. There are no filters, no AI-synced soundtrack. This is not going viral on TikTok. But Josie's father is a patient documentarian, and he lets the camera roll. These days, with everyone carrying high-definition video cameras in their pocket, we expect every moment of our lives to be documented. Laura and I would be about the same age, and our generation grew up in a transitional time for this sort of thing. There was video, and probably most American kids our age, featured in the occasional VHS recording. But they were less common, and many haven't survived. So what we have are these few glimpses into our long-ago lives, Their rarity makes them that much more precious. Look how free we were, how much potential we had, how safe. Oh my God. Look at her rubber lady. She was rubber lady. At this point in Josie's video, Laura is lying on the floor, splayed into an impossible position, like a yoga pose for the double jointed. A lot of Laura's stories feature this observation, that she didn't seem to operate under the same limits of bone and ligament as the rest of us. There's all the food we bought. My mom's eating it. <laughs> I've never noticed that before. Let's do our belly dancing routine. Oh, yeah, good idea. Do your belly dancing we were routine. In, you can skip this. Yeah, as I recall. Look at her legs. I know. It just I'm makes me. I just remember. Look how cute she is. She's so freaking cute. All that night, the conversation keeps drifting towards the underlying reason why we are in that wine bar away from Laura's extraordinary life and towards her unsolved death. Annie, in particular, keeps finding connections back to the unsolved questions, turning over possible theories. Then Josie asks a question, not can we work out what happened to Laura that night, but should we? I just feel really uncomfortable with that place that we're at, where there's just, there are no answers. And a lot of, a lot of guesses and assumptions and... Completely. Yeah, if we could know definitively, I'd... Yes, of course there'd be comfort there. But I don't know if I'll ever believe that there's a definitive answer, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Because we can't go back in time, we can't be there. No. I I was telling Jason when... um, I was fairly obsessed with trying to understand the exact timeline, every all the events, like, I wanted to go, and I, I realized, like, it's not, like, I... I'm trying to know what happened so I can point fingers or whatever. It was literally trying to go back in time and be there with her. And I'm like, why? Why is that an, you know, an, a compulsion? Why is that my reaction here? And it took me a while, but I think I figured out, like, when you're with a friend that's been through something horrific, how do you comfort them? You, you know, you can't go back in time and be there with them. But if you hear their story, yeah. 
and you listen and you find out more about what they went through, you can in some ways kind of go back there with them. And I realized I was trying to relate to Laura as if she were my living friend. This is still the part that I, I can't like, oh, it upsets me so much to think about what she went through no, it's, it's, in the last hours of her life. No, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's just because you know, well, man, you know, she would never, never just, in a single moment in the whole ordeal would she have backed down, no, given up, stopped fighting. We know no. this. I mean, we yeah, know this. I know it's so awful. Yeah, that's the part I can't get over. Like, and that's what I mean when I say if it was a hit and run, thank you, be yeah. because I prefer that to people that she knew fucking hurting her. If we're going to understand what happened to Laura, we need to get as close as we can to those final moments. In their initial investigation, the police reconstructed what they could of Laura's last day. While Annie and I are in Iowa, we plan to retrace her final steps as best we can and confront the people who might have been the last to see Laura alive, people she knew. I said, I'm here as Laura's friend and I want to know what happened to her, you know? That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Voice acting by Matt Addis. Special thanks to Thomas Matisic. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.